Brad's friend Marky died of cancer and Brad cried. Brad spent his life doing zen, but he never told his friend anything about zen. So then Brad wrote Marky a letter and it made him feel a little bit better. Then Brad wrote some more Sooty had letters by the score. And these are his letters to a dead friend about zen. Letters to a Dead Friend About Zen. Today's theme song was recorded by Whiskey and Chocolate. Today's letter was read on August 19th, 2019 at the Angel City Zen Center, Los Angeles, California, USA. We depend on your donations to support this podcast. To donate, go to hardcorezen.info slash donate. That's hardcorezen.info slash donate. Dear Marky, one of your friends told me a story about something that happened maybe a week or two before you died. Things were getting pretty bad by then and you were very sick. Apparently you kept coming in and out of consciousness. Whenever you were awake you kept saying, what is the answer? The friend who told me this story knew someone who was some kind of a psychic. He thought the psychic might be able to help you. So he brought the psychic to you and she, the psychic, listened to your question. When you asked the psychic what the answer was, she said, it's 42. The answer has always been 42. You and I were both fans of the book Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And in that book, a supercomputer computes the answer to the question of life, the universe, and everything. The answer it comes up with is 42. I guess that answer must have worked for you on some level because your friends said you settled down when you heard that. But is there an answer? I mean, other than 42? I understand the point of view that says the most obvious explanation for life, the universe, and everything is that it's all just random and meaningless. That follows completely logically from the materialistic view. We are steeped in that view as contemporary Western people. It is the view that made the most coherent and consistent sense to me for about the first 30-some years of my life, even while I was doing all that Buddhist stuff. The materialistic view is that matter is the bottom line. Everything we experience is based on the existence of matter. The reason we have any conscious experience, then, is because material substances in our bodies do things that register in our brains as conscious experience. Conscious experience is a kind of trick matter plays in order to make living beings function efficiently so that they'll get food, do whatever else it is they're supposed to do, and have sex in order to make replicas of themselves to take over the job once they die. Even saying that matter is playing a trick is too much. Matter doesn't know what it's doing, it just happens. If we take that point of view, the most obvious and most sensible conclusion is that there is no meaning to anything, no purpose for anything, no salvation, no nothing. This isn't at all emotionally pleasing. And so, the materialists say, we want to reject that reality in favor of a more pleasing alternative explanation based in superstition and wishful thinking. The reason for religion, then, is as a coping mechanism to deal with how brutally pointless everything actually is when we're honest about it. One of our favorite illusions, say the materialists, 
is to imagine that consciousness is the bottom line, that everything we experience is based on consciousness, is based on the mind. Then we can imagine the existence of God and of the soul, which are pure consciousness and completely unlike gross matter. This consciousness, we tell ourselves, animates matter. It makes it move around and do stuff. But it gets bewildered by the senses and starts identifying itself with matter, leading to the materialistic view. If only we understood that consciousness, not matter, was at the root of everything, then we'd be free from sense appetites and could dwell in endless bliss. This point of view is what philosophers call idealism. Personally, I always had deep difficulties with the idealistic point of view, which is the point of view most religions take. But unlike you, I think, Marky, I was very attracted to the idea that there was a meaning to life. Religions offer meaning, whereas materialistic philosophies deny it. I found the religious point of view appealing because it seemed to give people who accepted it a sense of purpose. It seemed to make them happier than I was. And because it was so appealing, I wanted to know if it could possibly be true. That's why I looked into religions. I wanted to believe their idealistic worldview because the materialistic worldview seemed so bleak and hopeless. Even though I thought the materialistic view was probably true, it was also ugly and depressing. It offered no comfort. It offered no possibility of salvation, to use the Christian terminology. I figured that religion was probably all nonsense and superstition, but there was a part of me that was willing to say that there was a possibility it wasn't. I couldn't believe in the kind of Christianity preached by televangelists and by the preachers I encountered in churches in Wadsworth, Ohio. But maybe, I thought, one of the other religions out there in the big wide world had it right. Yet every religion I looked into deeply disappointed me. They were clearly based on flawed reasoning and wishful thinking, just as I had suspected they might be. Both Eastern and Western religions seemed to be the same when it came to that. They just had different fantasies. Then I came across Buddhism. The Buddhists say that it may be a mistake to think the material world is absolute reality and that the material world exists first and because of its existence consciousness arises. In that sense, Buddhism is like other religions. But Buddhism deviates from the normal religious point of view by saying that it also may be a mistake to think consciousness is absolute reality, that consciousness exists first, and because of its existence, the material world arises. In fact, the Buddhists say, we might not ever be able to understand what's really going on here, at least not intellectually. Gudo Nishijima, my teacher, used to say, there is matter and there is meaning. To him, what he called meaning was as obvious as matter. Let me see if I can put this into words that might make sense to you. Let's start off with an easy one. The only entity in the entire universe who knows what you are is you, and no one can tell you what you are. They might be very enlightened, Maybe thousands of people think they're the greatest thing ever. They still do not know what you are. Or they might be super scientific. They might be a physics whiz who can follow equations just like they were reading a comic book. 
They might have perfect grounding in all the methods and reasoning of science. They still do not know the real experience of you being you. Science is, after all, the deep study of sensory experience. It measures sensory experiences and compares them to other sensory experiences that have been had by other human beings. It correlates the sensory experiences of many humans and says that if many humans report more or less the same sensory experience, that sensory experience must therefore be real. But it does all of this in one slice of reality, the realm of sensory experience. Materialism is, at its basis, the philosophy of sensory experience. But if you ask me, both materialism and idealism are iffy. I get why more people seem to side with materialism these days. Yet when I look at it closely, it falls apart just like idealism does. I cannot accept the idea that my real experience in this world is just a trick played by material forces to get me to reproduce. So maybe materialism and idealism are both inadequate ways of understanding what's real. In my own case, as in a lot of cases among those who call themselves Buddhists, looking into this question of who I really am involved sitting still and staring at a blank wall for a long time. A few minutes here and there won't do it, I'm afraid. Nor will it do to just use sitting as a means to ponder and ruminate. You have to commit to just sitting for its own sake, or at least I had to. Eventually, all that sitting and staring without any entertainment or deep thoughts to distract me wore me down enough that I could start to dimly see something that was not apparent before I did that process. And I'll tell you one of the answers that I came across through this process. Here it is. It's not 42. It's that Eventually, you have to resign yourself to the fact that not only don't you know the answer, but that you will never know the answer. You have to accept that what you are is incompatible with knowing what you are. You can never step outside of you and look at you as an object. But that's not the end of the story, because there are some things you can know. The fact that you'll never know the answer doesn't mean there is no answer. There is an answer. It's just that the answer is far bigger than our feeble human brains can grasp. We can't parse it out. We can't cut it up into the kind of chunks you need to cut things up into in order to make sense of them intellectually. The bigger questions can't be dealt with that way. Little ones can. Big ones can't. This is what makes the answer I'm talking about totally different from science. The scientific method is great. I really mean that. I am a huge fan of science. But the scientific method doesn't operate in this area because science requires taking things apart and considering the parts separately, looking at them objectively from outside. And the thing about the meaning of existence is that it cannot be removed from existence itself and considered separately. The answer to what the universe is, is the universe itself. Its meaning is bound up with its very existence. You can look at it right now if you want. There are moments when you can see it all, though. There are moments when you can come face to face with the ultimate meaning of everything. You recognize it even if you can't understand it. You recognize it because you are not separate from it. You are part of it. You are recognizing yourself. 
but it's not the self you thought you were. And, being part of the great meaning of everything, you are also the entirety of it. There is nothing that separates you from the ultimate meaning of everything. There is nothing between you and the ultimate meaning of everything. There can't be. But you can't stay there. It's funny. The source of everything is you. Cobencino, my first teacher's teacher, said, from that place you have come, actually, and whatever you do is returning to that spot. I know, right, another one of those stupid Zen contradictions, but it happens to be true. Even though you can't ever catch the answer, you can approach the answer. It's a little like approaching a bird or a lizard or some small animal. If you can learn to be very, very quiet and assure the bird that you're not going to eat it, that you just want to look at it, then sometimes a small bird will let you come close. But you have to train for this. You also have to be sincere. A little bird can tell if you're just pretending not to want to catch it, but you really do want to catch it. That's how it is with this. You have to sincerely not want to catch it. You have to sincerely not want to eat it up or keep it in a cage. You have to sincerely not want to make it into part of your persona, something you can brag to everyone else that you now possess. Only then are you allowed to get close. This is why I sit and stare at walls. I'm practicing for when that little bird lands in front of me. Metaphorically, I mean. The really funny thing, though, is that when you finally do come face to face with it, you recognize that it's something you knew all along. It's been there with you the whole time. It never went away. It was never hidden. It was never the least bit obscure. It was up in your face the entire time, yet somehow you had failed to recognize it. Cobencino said that it's like something ancient says to you, why don't you know me? Living so many years with me, why can't you call my real name? That's a really great description, I think. You always knew the answer. You just had to get quiet enough and honest enough to admit that it was the answer. See you later, skater. Brad. A lot of what I wrote in there I recognized, and I recognized this morning when I was working on it, as being things that Nishijima Roshi would say. And his he had a sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, a trope, a repeated thing he would say about materialism and idealism and why, you know, what was materialism, what was idealism and why Buddhism was neither materialism nor idealism. But he would also say that every philosophy in the world other than Buddhism was fit either into the materialism or idealism slot. And this is what he said. Um, I, you know, I don't know if I would I don't know. He may be right. And, and I think maybe that's why there's a problem, because everybody wants to slide everything into one of those two slots, you know? So everything gets... Even Buddhism, the way it's often taught by lots of people, unfortunately, is as a form of idealism. So it gets, it gets all wrapped up into that. And, and that's very attractive, and I don't know why it isn't apparent. I think, I think it took me a long time to kind of come around to this way of thinking because I kept wanting to go, you know, into one of those two slots. And when I finally realized that if I want to work with this, 
I can't go into either of those two slots. Because when, you're, when, you're, when you don't have one of those two to go into, either a materialistic sort of point of view or an idealistic point of view, it almost feels like you've got nowhere to go. You know, you just kind of like, well, what, what can I do about that? Um, yeah, I don't know. I think, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what human beings are exactly, but I think we're something. <laughs> and I, I think, <laughs> thank you. And I think we're something important. I think, I think there's something that's going on here within, within our, whatever we are as, as these sort of beings that it is actually significant, like cosmically significant. And I know I sound like a weirdo just saying that. But there's something, there's, there's no other animals, as, at least on this planet, at least as far as we know, has ever been able to do this, has ever been able to look at the world and sort of process it mentally at this level, as far as we know. You know, maybe whales and dolphins are singing to each other about the same things, and we'll figure that out one of these days. But... Until then, it just seems like we're alone in this. But I think it might be significant. I don't think it's just sort of this weird anomaly. I think it might be going towards something, but I don't know what, what it is. Um, I liked the, the line where you said that what we are necessarily means that we can't understand what we are. Yeah. Like some iteration of that. And it was kind of makes you think about just this constant like chasing of the tail, mm -hmm. you know, where you're, you're trying to lock down what, what we are, what's the cosmic significance, etc. Mm -hmm. It's just going to, by nature, be impossible. Um, and I kind of thought that that fit nicely in with the idea of, like, you're not even sitting in front of the bird, you're just kind of patiently thinking maybe one day it'll appear and yeah. <laughs> yeah. just the idea of like the chasing is so arbitrary almost and, and it's like the patiently sitting with whatever knowledge is already imbued by being human. Yeah, or just sitting with yourself. That's the that's the thing I think a lot of people have a hard time with in the Zen, because they're, they're, they're always kind of asking, and I, I know this because I did it, they're always asking, well, what's the point? You know, and you go, no, there's no point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? You're just sitting here. Well, what's the good in that? Well, I don't know. <laughs> it does some good, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it ironically can, you can solve your problems this way, but, uh, <laughs> but that's not what it's for, you know. You, you touched on the fact that there's no place to stand. Mm. You said between the material. Oh, right, yes, sir. From that idea or notion has been getting greater and greater as I get older and older and older. Mm. Not that. As I'm getting older, I realize that, that, that there's almost a great comfort in not having a place. In, yeah. in being able to move about freely. Um, I don't know, that's it. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting sort of philosophy. I, I, I really liked that Nishijima Roshi had this kind of 
way of setting it up as being neither materialism nor idealism. And I've never heard anybody else say that, but I think he's right. And I, I think it's an important distinction that, I think it's the reason Buddhism has been around for as long as it has, because, you know, there's a, there's a lot of philosophies out there, but this one is significantly different from everything else. And, and not having any place to stand is kind of, it's where we always find ourselves. You know, we don't really know. Sung San, the Korean Zen master, was his, his catchphrase was, don't know mind. You know, he would talk about the mind of not knowing. And St. John of the Cross said that as well, uh, who was a Christian a theologian, or what was St. John of the Cross? He was something. But he, he also talked about the cloud of unknowing. Was that St. John of the Cross or was that Pseudo-Dionysus? Anyway, it's one of these Christian mystics said that. So I, I think that not knowing is a, is a really interesting place to be. I think we're kind of scared of it generally because knowing something is how, it's how our species survives. I don't know how other species get through their lives, but human beings have, from the beginning of our species, gotten, gotten away with a lot by figuring stuff out, you know, which is our one big advantage that we have on the African savanna, or that we had on the African savanna, probably still do, those of us who are living there still, um, is, that, is that we can figure stuff out that even bigger, stronger, faster animals can't. Um, and so when we can't figure something out, it, it can make us feel really scared and that might be like deeply, you know, within our makeup is, is this desire to know what the hell is going on might be a real strong drive and, and giving up on that m might be very difficult for us. And Buddhism is asking us to do that all the time, to just kind of sit and not know, you know. So that's hard sometimes. <laughs> mm. it, 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 once you get into it, it's very easy. I think that's true, yeah. Once you can kind of get over the hump, at least that was it for me, to get over the hump of like, I don't know what's supposed to happen now. And going, okay, well, I don't know what's supposed to happen now. <laughs> it's, it's okay. Just sit here not knowing what's supposed to happen. Uh, thank you. I liked, well, I liked it all. I think the two things that stuck out to me were the, the little bird. I remember I was explaining or attempting to explain like what I do when I sit to someone that was curious. Mm -hmm. And then they were like, oh, so you're like playing the coquette, like you're flirting. <laughs> but if you make it clear that you want to like, you want that person, they'll never come. And I was like, Jesus. Yeah, like, I guess. You know? <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, but it just, I think about it sometimes, and it's such a silly way of thinking about it. But on the other hand, it's like, that's kind of true, I think, for like a lot of the time I, I think of meditation, or I, I do try to get somewhere when I'm doing it, or I'm sitting there, and I'm like, oh, I'll think of this. And then I have to constantly remind myself, like, that's never led me anywhere all that good in my yeah. life when I just try to keep untangling things and I guess the other thing I liked about what you said is like there's something about what we do that's outside the realm of sensory experience or like scientific like falsification or verification yeah. which is like at a certain point you can't pull things apart like 
there just is something and if you can just like try to experience that it really kind of defies words or explanation and anytime you try to it like misses the point yeah yeah try trying to find yeah trying to trying to actually just experience experiencing or something like that is I just read, and it's on the last video I put in my YouTube channel, if anybody watches that, but uh, there's this piece by Dogen called Zammai o Zammai, the, the Samadhi that is the king of Samadhis, and it, it's very short, and it has a nice little description about Zazen, and, and, and has a nice line about just inquiring what is sitting itself, you know, and it's one of the few times he actually just says that straight out in his writings which I, I really liked. Um, but yeah, so you're just sitting, you're sitting looking at sitting and, and, um, and the science, yeah, if there is a science, there probably is a scientific explanation. Every, I, I always get, not always, but I often get people sending me things that the, the, there's some research being done on meditation and they want me to get excited about it. And, and, you know, it's like a bit, it's a thing, you know, a lot of sort of famous meditation writers and stuff are very excited about the latest scientific study on meditation. And I'm just never that excited about them. I've participated in a few experiments and stuff along those lines that people wanted, you know, wanted experienced meditators to, to sit and have junk taped to their head and stuff. I've done it. Um, but I'm like, I'm going, well, I, you know, that's one way of looking at this, but that doesn't, that's not really. <laughs> yeah, I quickly, I just was thinking, I feel like um, I study, well, it doesn't really matter what I study, but anyway, I study some kind of like neuropsychiatry, no, like the history yeah. of it, or like the ethic, but I don't know, a lot of things. But I feel like a lot of those studies, they're really concerned with the ends, right? So like if you could find like the synapse in the brain, that like when you meditate for 30 minutes, it charges that or whatever it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. But if we could just do like a pill that would do that, yeah, you know, yeah, or if you yeah. just like, right? And I feel like that can kind of be some of the mindset behind it. Like, we just want that result. And I'm sort of firmly convinced, like, that's never... Like, no, there's no shortcut, you know? Yeah, I got I got into it. It's This has been a long time ago, but I was in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'd been invited there to participate in in one of these studies where this neuro neurologist was going to... He did... He scanned my brain and had me do all this thing. And then part of the deal was I would give a lecture to his students, and I did... And one of the students like, started asking, well, what if, what if we invent a medicine that can, can create the meditative state? And I said, it's impossible to do that. He said, well, what if, how do you know it's impossible? I, I said, it's just, it's impossible to do that. You can't, you can't do that. That's not how this works. And, and it became this kind of like nasty exchange between me and this student. Finally, the, the professor who was heading this class kind of intervened and calmed the guy down. But yeah, it's not it's not that kind of thing, you know. It's and the 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 best comparison I came up with later after this argument was it's it's like you know if you tried to tell a weightlifter like oh yeah we're gonna have a pill that's gonna make you instantly buff you know or or or, or somebody who's interested in um, physical fitness yeah you're gonna have this pill that's gonna instantly shed two hundred pounds or whatever it just isn't gonna happen. You know, that's not the nature of the thing. It just, you know, it just, you can wish that it was like that, but it's not, it's not going to be like that. Yeah. yeah, and I don't think you're going to do that. I mean, I think, I think they're already in the form of, you know, psychedelics. There are things that can give you these sort of 
trippy experiences that are in some ways similar to some of the things that happen during meditation, but they're not, you know, that's, that's not it either. I mean, that's in a lot of ways as far away from it as you can get, you know, even though that's probably what people are imagining when they imagine these things. Yeah. What it sounds like and what I've come to see too is like looking for me in itself doesn't make sense at a certain point, especially of sitting. Right, the point where the part where you kind of started to get the meaning is the part where the whole idea of looking for meaning falls away, and so just that notion gets funny. But then, even knowing that you're already saying, you know, clearly because you can't stay there, but you also say clearly we're here to study this, not yeah, yeah. that, which reminds me that okay, so my my little less zazani brain wants to like look for meanings for things. And there must be a reason for that, you know, even though I know that's not where the ultimate truth lies. Like me running around looking for this stuff to make sense must also be part of it. So it's not a bad thing, it's just no. not as complete as I like to think it's going to be. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it's not a bad thing. I think there's a certain, I mean, there's that bodhicitta, which is a really hard concept that comes up in Buddhism and it means the bodhi mind, but it's sort of... Nishijima used to translate as, that as will to the truth. There's this, there's this sort of aspiration towards, um, sometimes it's translated as aspiration to enlightenment. But there is, a, there is that, and that I think that has to arise in people before they're going to be willing to, to do a practice like this. Well, I don't think it has to, but I think for most people. You know, you're not going to put in the work that this sort of a practice requires unless you're pretty serious about it and unless you're pretty well convinced that the other avenues are just not going to work you know um, which is a you know a rare position to be in I think I don't I don't think a lot of people get into that finally get to that point but um, yeah. but so there is something to the desire to kind of want to figure it out but then you have to go oh yeah but you can kind of you, you can get a little further along which I think is the little bit of encouragement I can offer just as a person who's done this for a long time is that you do you do get you, you can get further along and you can and, and a lot of things that didn't make sense will start to make sense but you also find at least for me and probably I think everybody else who does this you also find that those things are very difficult to explain you know and so you try to explain them and people go what <laughs> so um, yeah it made me wonder about like how uh, it, it seems like we're always trying to extract meaning from our experience, but um, I feel like maybe the, the, the situation is more that like, uh, our experience isn't itself meaning. But it's yeah, like, yeah. You know, but but that's like I think very very difficult because it's like you can't you can't grasp that. You know, it's like you can't wrap your head around that. Really. No, yeah, you can't really. Yeah, it's because it's. It's the thing you're trying to wrap itself with, or or something, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, trying to look at the back of your head in a mirror, or some one of these yeah, kind of things. I forget who said it. Might have been you, actually, trying to trying to grasp like the present moment is like trying to grab a balloon with one finger or something. Yeah, somebody, I don't think that was me. Somebody, somebody. I think I said it was trying to grab a handful of cheese whiz. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, but it is like that. 
I, I was always fascinated by Nishijima's use of the word meaning because he used it a lot. And that phrase that I used in the letter, there is matter and there is meaning, was one of these things he said a lot. And I'd be going, what does he mean by meaning? You know, because he's, he's Japanese, he was Japanese, and he, was, he, was, he used English in an idiosyncratic way. Uh, so I had to be like, what? You know, but I think meaning was this sort of, I think he was kind of pointing to the experiential sense of reality. I mean, there's, there's a material side of reality, there's stuff, you know, and you can kind of point to that and say it's this big and weighs this much and whatever else. But then you have this experiential side that I think in a, in a sort of materialistic view, the materialistic view doesn't know what to do with that. At least every time, everything I've read about it just kind of leaves me thinking, oh, you guys don't know what to do with that because it doesn't really fit. Right. You know, you can say it's, a, it's an accidental, it's just electrical firing in, in your sense organs and stuff like that. And you go, okay, well, that's true, but how come I know it's going on? I mean, who's, what's that about? <laughs> you know, there seems to be something experiencing this. Even if you say it's just electrical energy, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a sense of experience, and I think that's what he meant by meaning, is that, that weird something. Yeah. I think I actually explained myself well to, like, my, my therapist made some sort of assumptive comment last week about sitting. And mm -hmm. I was like, no, it's like, more like that space between thinking and not thinking. Yeah, yeah, it is. And he was like, trying to get it, and like, but that to me felt like what you said. It was like, yeah, this thinking and not thinking, and there's that space, and there's this, this things, all the things we know, and then it's all the things that are not the thing, you know, things we know. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot. I mean, you're you're kind of just entering into the unknown. I mean, you always are, but <clears throat> but Zazen kind of makes that a little bit more clear. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just it's just the unknown. I mean, you you kind of. It's kind of this funny thing because we set up, we're, we're very careful in, in Zen tradition to kind of set up a situation that doesn't feel threatening or whatever. You know, you, you have rules about the Zendo and you have a, you know, the door is closed and everything. So you don't really have to worry about what's going to happen next. But at the same time, you're also plunged into this like, you have no idea, you know. And most of the time, as I always say, it's just boring, you know. But but um, but every once in a while, there's something else will happen during zazen, and then you go oh, <laughs> you know. But then then if those if those things get a little bit too exciting, you always you need to step back away from them and go oh, okay, hold on, don't get too excited. Thank you. We depend on your donations to support this podcast. To donate, go to hardcorezen.info/donate. That's hardcorezen.info slash donate.